Before we get to this week's episode with Michelle Nickham, I want to let you know that this was one of my very first interviews that I did for Pivot Point. I hope you'll overlook a few audio irregularities that neither Michelle nor my editor Peter were able to save this novice podcaster from. Thanks for being such gracious partners in this work. Let's get to the show. Welcome to Pivot Point. My name is Michael Neal, and I work at a school in Tennessee called Vanderbilt University. It's basically my job to learn with and from some of the most thoughtful, ambitious, and impactful individuals who have come through Vanderbilt's Leadership and Learning in Organizations doctoral program. Before earning a doctorate, these leaders partner with an organization, conduct a research project in that organization, and offer evidence-based recommendations that make a positive impact. We call this a capstone project. This is a show about how some of the most dynamic capstones were constructed and carried out, and the particular pivot points that made the project, but could have broken it. My philosophy is any organization that I'm working with or individual, I want to leave them in a better position than I met them. They were in a critical position and I didn't want the university to close down. In this episode, we hear from Dr. Michelle Nickham, who worked with a private Midwestern University on her capstone. Michelle encountered a number of dilemmas relatively early in the process and had to make decisions about the stance she would take with her partner organization and what exactly she was supposed to do. Let's get to the interview so Michelle can tell you more about it. Dr. Michelle Nickham, I'm so glad to have you on Pivot Point. Thank you. So tell us a little bit about you, how you ended up in a doc program focused on leadership. Just give us the rundown here. My name is Michelle Nickham. I currently live in St. Thomas, U.S. Virgin Islands. I have over 25 plus years of experience working in the philanthropic, government, nonprofit, and corporate sectors. I was very fortunate to begin my philanthropic career working for the Rockefeller family um, in their family office, which was housed at 30 Rockefeller Plaza in New York City many years ago. I stayed with them for about 13 years. Currently, I am a private consultant and work remotely with a wide range of global projects and diverse courses, such as cancer, impact investing, diversity, inclusion, and equity economic development, poverty reduction, social programs, just to name a few. Um, I normally develop and implement socially responsible investing strategies and programs tailored to the goals of high net worth individuals, family offices. Can you just say a little bit about like when, when you think of socially responsible uh, in that way, what, what, do you, what, come, what do you mean by that? Well, what are the um, corporations doing to give back to the communities? What sort of programs do they have for their in, um, employees to provide support to charitable organizations? What are they doing to really give back to these communities? We try to help to develop strategies so that it's in line with the corporation's mission, um, vision, or their foundation, and the, the sort of impact that they want to have, whether it's in education, health, environment, uh, equity, diversity, and inclusion. It really depends on the foundation. Gotcha. Can you kind of give us uh, give us the, the helicopter ride first over the project that you did? The problem of practice for the Midwest uh, University I chose to work for my project was um, really focused on its inability to consistently achieve its fundraising and philanthropic 
objectives. Over the last um, several years, the lack of financial support, alumni and donor contribution really exposed the university to certain financial risk and deficits. So the, the university's need for increased revenue from the private sector really stemmed from that decline in student enrollment and tuition revenue. Mm. And as well as, you know, the declining um, state funding and failing enrollments. So they really needed to come up with a strategy to help keep their doors open. I mean, this is a, like, this is a problem that higher ed is facing across the board, but especially at institutions like, like the one you worked with. Tell us a little bit more about like you, you connected with these folks uh, at what we're calling a small Midwestern university. And you knew initially, like they said, we have a problem, right? (laughs) They knew they had it. They knew they had a problem, but tell us a little bit about how you came to recognize the problem. And I'm wondering, you know, to what extent was, was it immediately apparent? To what extent was this kind of something that came clear over the course of time as you peel back layers of an onion? Sure. So based on my experience, I was invited by the president of the university to work with the vice president of advancement. Mm-hmm. And they said, can you come in and conduct a department audit to help the university improve its fundraising strategies? Um, Initially, this was to examine the functions of the advancement department, specifically its donor cultivation and fundraising, how they were their alumni uh, relations, public relations and marketing. So initially it was kind of like we've got a department that needs some kind of tune up work. Correct. Okay. And this led to me looking at their relationships with other departments, such as admissions, university relations the Alumni Association, the Board of Directors, I looked at all aspects. What made you What made you start looking outside of the department or looking in those in-between spaces? Because they didn't have the tools necessary to be successful as an advancement department. That normally, that information is provided by the marketing department. And admissions already have a lot of marketing materials that they use to get students involved within the university and to come to the university. So they weren't tapping into resources that were already created to help them move forward in their philanthropic strategies. And was that was that immediately apparent or was it apparent as you started to talk to people? Or? It was apparent as soon as I started talking to people, mm-hmm. to the staff. I interviewed the president of the president of the university, um, the provost, the dean, staff members um, that from the same several departments, board members, trustees, and students. Mm. So I interviewed a wide spectrum of individuals that can really give me an idea of the problem. And some of the things I heard were the same from a lot of different individuals. And did this end up being like, I mean, this ends up being like a really sprawling, (laughs) sprawling problem, which means a sprawling, you know, a, a, a project with a really wide, um, lens, did you start feeling overwhelmed or like, oh gosh, like where's the boundary of this thing? No, I understand how systems work. And from coursework at Vanderbilt, it helped me connect some of the issues that I came across within the university. In order to systems to work and there has to be alignment and everyone has Mm -hmm. to be responsible for their particular aspect of making sure that the university is successful. 
as a whole. And they just did not have the correct systems in place. So it was a matter of helping them realize that and come up with a solution to help them address it. Talk us through how you decided the the approach to investigate this problem sure. what you what you went to for this study i found a qualitative design was more appropriate for exploring and interpreting the meanings from the participants that i were that i was going to interview i wanted to hear based on their experiences their beliefs and perception of the problem how i can help that let's take a short break when we come back Michelle tells us how she designed the investigation in light of this sprawling problem that she encountered. This is Pivot Point, and I'm Michael Neal. Let's get back to our interview with Michelle Nickham. How was the work you did in this project, how was it different than, say, what you would do as a consultant? Like, if the, if the, if at all, like, you know, this, this work you ended up doing, um, yeah. In what ways was it different? In what ways is it similar to the kind of work you would do as if they had hired you as a consultant? Oh, I would not have done the amount of research I did. The data collection, yeah. my literature, literature review, yeah. just all the research necessary to make sure that, you know, I was providing the best data as possible mm-hmm. for my project. So it, it's not as intense. And based on my experience, I would normally use my experience to guide my decision making. But I wanted to be very thorough and used a lot of the um, my resource dependency theory, my methodology to help guide me. Michelle mentioned resource dependency theory there. Just in case you're not caught up on your org theory concept, let me give you a brief refresher. You can go look it up if you want the full Monty, but the thumbnail goes like this. Resource dependency theory got its start in the 70s as engineers were trying to better understand how organizational behavior is impacted by resources that an organization draws on to make or do whatever they make or do. Beyond raw materials, resource dependency theory allowed researchers to focus on the ways an organization or one part of a large organization interacts with other external resources for what they need. It could be anything from raw materials to funding to recognition or legitimacy. The bottom line argument is that resources and power and relationships are linked in the functioning of organizations. For Michelle, this meant looking at the interdependence of different departments and external stakeholders as a way of understanding this funding problem rather than isolating that problem to the advancement office as she had initially been asked to do. Let's get back to the interview. And structure and keep me within the parameters that's that's based on on that methodology. So I used three methods of data collection. Um, I examined primary documents that they had before. I observed from observation in staff meetings, board meetings, um, and in-depth and open-ended interviews with the 15 members that I selected. I wanted to have a diverse set of data. So I identified who I believed would be able to provide that information to current students yeah. and past students and mm-hmm. past board members and current board members. Okay. Um, I spoke to the outgoing president, the interim president, and the new president as yeah. well. Yes. And, and all of it was to get at this angle of what are kind of systemic issues when it comes to this fundraising. I'm saying it like that. Am I getting it right? You are um, getting it right. 
because it takes a village, as they say, to raise a, ch- a child. Yeah. It takes a village to ensure that the the fundraising efforts are successful within the university. So it's not just the advancement department, but it's the president, it's the board members' responsibility, it's the trustees, it's the students who then become alumni that come around and provide funding. It's also the athletes. So what is the university doing to really cultivate those relationships? The second research question targeted the role of the university's leadership, um, how they should have to maximize successful fundraising outcomes. Participants provided interview narratives, developing sub-teams like establishing strategic fundraising plan, which is something that's extremely important in fundraising, um, helping the university to restore a positive image because that's how you get donors. Mm-hmm. It's based on your image. They have to feel a part of the cause. They have to feel drawn. They have to identify with that cause. So there has to be a positive image. Um, there was the need to hire the right staff, competent staff, and also to invest in cultivating alumni and student engagement so that when students and athletes left, they would feel they wanted to give back to the university. Mm-hmm. The third research question asked to what extent the university maintains inter-organizational relations with its community and philanthropic organizations. How are they going about engaging the community? How are they going about getting foundations and corporations involved within the university to provide support? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the findings really demonstrated that the university minimum level of inter-organizational relations with the community and philanthropic um, organizations you know, it, it produced problems with them ob- obtaining resources. That was one of the major issues. So one of the recommendations was enhancing, you know, the overall philanthropy strategy. You know, they had to really focus on donor cultivation and um, the lack of interorganizational cohesion where the advancement department was not speaking with the marketing department. <laughs> they weren't mm-hmm. into you know, um, working with admissions, and and they need to work together Mm -hmm. in order for them to be successful. And really, you know, start cultivating um, students from at the admissions, Mm. you know. Right. Um, My last research question asked how could the university diversify its fundraising efforts for greater impact? Um, And this finding was under the environmental constraints, what was really holding them back. And what was generated based on this was, you know, they needed to really reassess their current outreach strategies and communication strategies. Um, They needed to provide support to the students and alumni, um, invite them to events, um, and, and help students feel that, you know, they're getting the career advice that's needed so that once they leave, they know what sort of field they want to step into. Mm-hmm. So they really needed to focus on the university's unique identity and help, you know, the community, students, parents, and everyone feel that they're a part of, because of, it was a Catholic university, a part of the mm. university. Okay, that completely makes sense. All right, so this really, it ended up being more participatory in nature than 
you probably initially envisioned. And so I'm tell me a little bit about that work as you got in there and started realizing, wow, these folks need some help. So I actually started consulting and mentoring the staff of the university because... And not me, you weren't actually getting paid, right? I was not getting paid at all. And my philosophy is any organization that I'm working with or individual, I want to leave them in a better position than I met them. So I went beyond and I had created a corporation and foundation strategy for one of my clients. And I actually shared that with the organization And went as far as identifying organizations or corporations and foundations that they can solicit to receive funding because they were in a critical position and I didn't want the university to close down. So I really, I felt that was my um, contribution to their success, free consulting. You're there as a graduate student doing this project that's supposed to be an investigation that'll have findings and recommendations, right? But then you end up in this uh, consultant role, which is, you know, alongside doing the investigation as a graduate student. Was there a, did you feel a tension there or did it feel like uh, natural to move back and forth? No, it felt very natural because I was able to stay focused based on my research and also provide them with advice based on my experience. So I did not want to have those lines crossed. So it was a matter of, okay, I'm a graduate student now and my research, I want to stay focused on my research and what am I trying to help you solve the problem that I'm trying to help you solve. And then on the other spectrum, I'm here as a consultant because I see that you're in a very dire situation where the university can close down if these strategies are not implemented. So here are some tools that can really help you. And so how did you decide like where to focus your attention as far as like helping? I mean, it's like the, what you were, what you were identifying was systemic and across different departments. So how did you decide like, where am I going to get involved? Where's the leverage here? When I realized that they did not have systems in place and they were missing core components Um, in fundraising, such as a grant writer. Uh, They were missing the vice president of advancement. The person had left and they didn't have staff to fill those positions. And some of the staff members were past students that were hired into these positions who were not experienced at all. So I wanted to share my experience with them, especially working in the field for so many years to help them to, you know, just improve and, and help direct them in terms of attending conferences and associations that they can get fundraising skills um, and just provide them with the best tools as possible for them to be successful. Did any example come to mind of something that you, you told us, you told me that you, uh, you provided them that, um, what did you call it? I called it a, a corp, I created two strategies, a corporation yep. strategy and mm-hmm. the foundation strategies. And was that a part of your project or was that just in addition to that it? That was an addition. Is there a particular point that stands out like a, a moment in time or a something that you encountered where you were you were like, whoa, this is going to require more than just me showing up as a graduate student and writing my paper? Yes, it did when I realized there were s- several intense situations at the university that needed immediately to be rectified. I needed to do something. I couldn't just stand by and watch it 
fresh. I had to do something to stop the hurting. And without can without breaking anonymity, can you can you describe one of those things that you noticed that made you go yikes? Um, they were losing checks um, from donors, and there wasn't a system in place to track it efficiently. So I needed to stop and say, okay, immediately this needs to be done, and these are the, the steps and the procedures that needs to be followed in order to ensure that the donors are being notified once, you know, a check is received and you're starting to cultivate that relationship with that donor. You know, you can say to the donor, oh, we never received your check because it was lost. Yes. So I had to put things into place immediately, certain procedures into place immediately. Okay. Literally had to stop my interview, say, okay, this is, here's what we need to do. We're going to do this. We're going to go speak to the president, explain this is what we need to do and get this done. And that was literally like mid-interview with That someone. was mid-interview, yes. <laughs> okay. Mid-interview. And how would you say, like, when you think about the way, like, how, how did um, your contacts there receive the findings? Were they, were they well-received? Were there surprises? Was there pushback or resentment? There wasn't any pushback because everyone was very excited about what it is I was I was working on and the level of support that I provided to them. So they were very open and um, they understood my experience and what I was bringing to the table, the value that I was bringing to the table for the university based on, you know, just my experience with Vanderbilt and what I was learning and implementing within the university, you know, mm-hmm. and, and my experience. So, I didn't have any sort of, no, we're not going to do that. All the recommendations were well-received. They implemented some of them. Uh, You recognized that the university really didn't have the capacity to engage in everything you might recommend, right? That there were some limitations that were real. Um, And so I'm curious, like, how did you deal with that reality in terms of making recommendations, you know, when you knew kind of capacity limitations? Well, I knew that based on evidence-based research, um, it was imperative for them to implement some of these strategies. Simple strategy, create a strategy. (laughs) So like that, I mean, right, that doesn't create, that doesn't require a lot of capacity, right? Correct. Create a strategy, strategy. have a fundraising strategy in place. I'm giving you a roadmap that you can use. I've identified donors for you to go and solicit. So that problem is solved. It's not going to take you a lot of effort to do that. I've already done the homework for you. I've given you the information. Here's what you can do. And that's free consulting. Um, Another strategy that was very important was for them to implement a pilot um, program to offer students the personalized career path um, and leadership development that they needed, hands-on learning. They needed to provide that service because a lot of the students that I interviewed said, I don't feel I'm receiving this from the university. This is, here's what's missing. They be, students become alumni. They are the ones that's providing support once they leave the university. You need to make sure that at the ending of the day, when the student has completed their degree, they feel that the university has given them the best support needed for them to be successful in their life. Yep. And it was, it was well worth the time and money they spent. Correct. So you need to, it needs to go both ways. 
If the university provides the students with the education, the career advice and leadership that they need, when they graduate, they're going to feel like, okay, you know what? I really was able to move forward in my life Mm -hmm. after this experience. I want to give back. I want to come and give back to the university. So you need to cultivate those relationships from the time a student gets into the university to when they're leaving. And after a degree, you want that advice. What career should I go in with this sort of degree? What yep. is what are my next steps here? Can you provide me with an internship opportunity based on past students that's maybe in a leadership role? Can I go and intern with that, that um, alumni person mm-hmm. at their corporation? Right. So those are the little things that they needed to understand. I was able to speak to the board members and explain to them their role that they needed to play in helping um, mentor. So they actually had you come in and speak to the board? Yes, I met with the board as well and explained to, you know, their role in fundraising and Mm -hmm. cultivating relationships with students, invite them to dinner, invite them to lunch, you know, help cultivate that relation, help mentor these students. If there's an internship at your place of office, have the student come in and do some work and learn that life experience, that work experience. So it sounds like you you were kind of making decisions of, all right, you know, if we want this to be a, you know, a Ferrari of, you know, fundraising, right? That would be one thing. But you were making decisions about like what can be done now that would really have a high impact or a high leverage impact? Is that kind of the way you ended up thinking about where to make your recommendations? It it was because part of it was corporate social responsibility. There's matching gift programs that if employees are not aware of it, they can give back to the university being matched by their company. That's a source of resources that the university was not tapping into. So based on my interaction with the board members and my experience and developing a corporate social responsibility strategy for other corporations or foundations, I'm aware of what's needed and, and how to diversify the fundraising stream of universities, nonprofits, and civil society organizations. I was happy that they were able to use my recommendations. That made me feel really good because the students really loved the school, the university. They loved it. So I was very happy that I was able to help the university um, not close down. What do you hear from what do you hear from anybody, if anything, about like what uh, what the university has done? I know like from what you've said already, it's still it's still kicking. And after the last three years in the pandemic and everything, if if a university is surprised, that that alone is impressive. But what what do you hear, if anything? Um, I know that they have developed a comprehensive fundraising strategic plan for the entire university. I know that they have done that, um, and it's anchored to the institution's overall priorities. And everyone is working towards because they understood the situation that they were in. So they're still doing it. And I'm happy about that. And it's they're still open. <laughs> so that's a good sign. Um, I got to do what I love, which is helping, you know, the university improve its revenue stream, um, its process processes, uh, its fundraising strategies. Plus, I was able to mentor others for free. <laughs> 
<laughs> which I, I've been doing throughout my career. I feel that I am not successful as an individual unless if I'm helping others to grow. So this was, this was a really great experience for me. I was very happy I had the opportunity to work with them. What's, uh, what's next for you? I feel like you always have, you always have multiple irons in the fire. Uh, what's next for you? I recently joined the board of um, Anavex Pharma Company um, as the vice president of the board. So that's a new chapter for me, and I'm really excited. I've, never, I've normally served on nonprofit boards, so this is the first pharma company that I'll be working with. So cool. Thank you. Dr. Michelle Nickham, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure, Dr. Neal. Thank you so much for your time and inviting me on your show. Other than this project being valuable for the university, what do we notice about the decisions Michelle made along the way that made a difference? One decision that stands out to me was actually a series of decisions and perhaps better described as a tension that she had to navigate between researcher and consultant. She had to decide the extent to which she was willing to step in and do work over and above the work required for the Capstone project. And she had to decide how to draw on her own expertise in philanthropy and when to try to bracket that expertise in order to not get ahead of the empirical findings from the investigation. What makes these kinds of decisions difficult is that there are few hard and fast rules about how much to get involved with an organization while conducting a research practice partnership work like this. And likewise, some fuzzy lines when it comes to drawing on your own expertise in a particular area as compared to grounding all the recommendations in scholarly literature. In any case, it sounded like both the university and Michelle benefited greatly from this project. A huge thank you to the guests who make this show something worth listening to. Thanks to Peter Shellman for editing, mixing, and tech support. This podcast was made possible in part by a grant from Peabody College Dean's Office, for which I'm certainly grateful. Thanks also to the Capstone Partner Organizations, the hardworking Capstone Advisors, and Program Director Eve Rifkin, all of whom make these projects happen. And thank you for listening. Please take a moment to like, review, and share this podcast because that's the way other people are going to find it. All right. I'll see you next time, folks. I'm Michael Neal, and this is Pivot Point.